Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I have worked manual labor jobs for my entire life. I have worked as a pastor, and I am taking my first steps into the exciting world of academics. In this podcast, we will dive into history, theology, current events, and perhaps even other topics along the way. In this series, we will explore the American Civil War, the foundational event in the United States' rise from a brand new nation to full-fledged world power. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to open tonight with a little anecdote that might surprise you that the federal government paid the last dollar of Civil War debt on May 31st, 2020. Wow. This is Irene Triplett. She was born in the 30s. Her father at the time was 84. Her father fought first for the Confederates, but then switched to the Union Army and then fought loyally for the Union for the last half of the war, which is an interesting story itself. I'd really like to read how that went down, but perhaps he he was in Tennessee or something, or for whatever reason, he did fight for the Union Army, so he qualified for a pension, and not all children of veterans qualify for pension, but she did, so for... Every month she would receive $73.13 from the federal government, but she died in May of 2020. Some of the reports said she died of COVID, mostly because of the timing. She actually had hip surgery and then had complications from that. That's part of the legacy, I mean a minor part, but that's part of the legacy of the Civil War. It was a very expensive war and the debt kept going until COVID. So tonight we're going to look at some of the legacies of the Civil War and we're going to explore some of the lingering controversies. Okay, so the Civil War, the first legacy is that it really cemented national cohesion over state sovereignty. So if you look at the way Americans thought of America before the revolution, obviously most people thought of themselves as British subjects, but if, if they thought about their regional affiliation, it would have been to the colony. It was only with the outbreak of war that started the idea that the entire eastern coast of what's, what would become the United States could have a unified national identity. As the war progressed, first the Articles of Confederation, well actually first, the, first it was the Continental Congress, the first Continental Congress and the second Continental Congress, which produced the Articles of Confederation, and then eventually the Constitution. And you'd think the Constitution would be the final nail in the coffin of independence states. And, but no, for a long time, people still thought of the United States as a political unit of sovereign states that were just organized together. And some states, like South Carolina, really took that to the extreme. South Carolina believed that they had the absolute right to secede whenever they wanted to, and really for whatever reason. They put as much in their uh, Declaration of Immediate Causes, which explained why they seceded. But even in the way Americans talked, before the Civil War, if you were to use the United States in a sentence, you would say the United States are. So the United States are great trading partners with Britain. 
After the Civil War, you would that sentence would be worked differently. You would say the United States is a great trading partner with Britain. And if you think about the way the English language works, we are overcoming a syntax abnormality. The United States is doesn't work in English. States is plural, is is singular. It shouldn't it shouldn't work together. But we've we've grown up in this country, so we're just used to saying the United States, in our mind, we already know that's a singular noun, and so we use is. The United States is great instead of the United States are great. Without the, the national cohesion that started to form after the Civil War, and why did it start forming? My theory is when you have half the country fighting explicitly for the Union, the main war aim, the secondary war aim in the North became the emancipation of slaves. Lincoln and the Radical Republicans craftily molded war aims towards the end until the emancipation of slaves was one of the war aims. But the primary war aim in the North was always to preserve the Union. And so when half of your country has fought hard for that, that starts to become part of the national DNA. So after the Civil War, especially as new generations are born after the Civil War, people start to think less and less of their individual states as sovereign entities and more of individual slices of the greater pie. I certainly, that's the way I think about Kansas. I think highly of Kansas. I think it's a swell place to live. We just won the national championship. It's a great, great state. I don't think of Kansas in the same way I think of Mongolia or Egypt or Ukraine as a sovereign nation. I don't. I think of Kansas in, honestly, we really should drop the word state. We should use the word province because that's how we, how states function in this country now, like provinces in Canada. Our relationship to the federal government is more closely aligned with the way, say, Manitoba's relationship is with the nation of Canada. Whereas if we really were sovereign states, then our relationship with the federal government would be similar to Canada's relationship with the United Nations. But after the Civil War, we stopped thinking of ourselves as a collection of independent sovereign states and more as one uh, complete, complex state called the United States of America. And our state of Kansas is just part of that overall whole. Without that cohesion, a recurrence of the Civil War could have been likely. Because if we don't build that cohesion, as tensions grow at various times in, in American history since the Civil War, there could have been the outbreak of war. But it was kind of unthinkable. So just as an example, I'm not even sure it's the most potent example, but just as an example, in the Dust Bowl era, as Oklahoma citizens as well as New Mexicans, Kansans, Coloradans, Texans pack up all their belongings and move to California. And then the Californians call them Okies and treat them poorly, even if they're not from Oklahoma. They're all Okies and they're, they're treated poorly. They're treated similar to the way some immigrants, especially illegal immigrants, are, are treated today. If you ever read the book The Grapes of Wrath, you'll see just how those kinds of families were treated. If our nation thought of itself as not a collected unit, a, a main sovereign unit called the United States with individual subdivisions within. Instead, we thought of ourselves like the United Nations where Oklahoma was a sovereign nation and California was a sovereign nation. Well, that kind of tension could have sparked some kind of conflict. But there was never really any threat of any conflict between Oklahoma and California during the Dust Bowl. There just wasn't because we were all Americans. We were all part of the United States of America.
That being said, the Civil War was so devastating. Let's call this point number two. The Civil War was so devastating that it put off two whole generations of Americans from wanting to go to war. There really wasn't a push for war, like a public outcry, even a minor outcry for war until the Maine was exploded. And of course, historians believe now that the USS Maine and Havana Harbor was, it was probably an accident. It was probably an accident in uh, the ammunition hold of the ship. But the newspapers played it off as a terrorist bombing by the Spanish authorities. And so we, the, the outcry rose up, we should go to war with Spain, and we did. This is the Spanish-American War, the last couple of years of the 19th century. Two whole generations between the Civil War and the Spanish-American War went by without any real threat of, of going to war. We did not try to conquer anybody. We did not threaten to go to war over trade issues like we did in the John Adams administration with the quasi-war with France. The revolution. Yeah, the revolution is was mostly about trade issues. There were also, as Americans, we tend to think of the American Revolution as about liberty. That's how we want to think about it. And it is that way, but only if you look at the topic of representation. The real big liberty issue is that Parliament wasn't seating MPs, members of Parliament, from Boston or New York or Charleston, whereas Parliament did sit MPs from various places around England, and I'm pretty sure also Wales and Scotland had MPs in Parliament. And honestly, if England had responded as unrest started to stir in Boston and in New England, if they would have responded, if part of the response was, you guys need to elect some MPs and then send them over, that might have put the end to the revolution. I mean, that's a counterfactual of history we can't know. But certainly, the American Revolution, at least one of the ways of looking at the American Revolution is it was a war that broke out over taxation and trade issues. After the Civil War, we didn't really threaten to go to war with anybody over that kind of stuff. We, we were just so sick of war. By a percentage of the population, the Civil War was the bloodiest war we've ever had. Far bloodier than World War II, just because of percentage of population. And if you look at just American body counts, and I'm combining Confederate here. We'll say Confederate and Union are all Americans. If you look at just American body count, Civil War is even, not percentage-wise, just total numbers, it was more bloody than, than World War II. The Civil War was more bloody than World War II. The regular army, though, I mean, the regular army would continue to fight. We all know that there were battles, like Little Bighorn, between the army regulars and Native American tribes. That kind of stuff would happen, but we would never threaten Canada, Britain, Russia, because Russia was a North American power in Alaska. We never threatened Mexico or Spain. Spain we eventually would, but through that whole period, the Reconstruction and then the post-Reconstruction era, we, we never really wanted to go to war with any of these. And even if you look at the Spanish-American War, that really ended up being a rather limited war with limited conquests. Because if you think about it, our war with Spain and our war with Mexico ought to have been very similar wars. They're going to war against a nation that, that we can overpower just by sheer strength of will, Spanish-speaking nation with territories that we want. Mexico had a lot of territory we wanted, and Spain had Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, various other territories that we wanted. In Mexico, though, we took about as much land as we could justify taking. And in the Spanish-American War, we actually really didn't take much. We did take Puerto Rico and Guam, 
even today, the political identity of Puerto Rico is still a little weird. I honestly think we should go to Puerto Rico and say, and let them decide. Let the citizens of Puerto Rico decide, independence or statehood. And then if they choose statehood, then we take Puerto Rico and the American Virgin Islands and combine them into a state called Puerto Rico. And then let them be a state. And let them have full representation in Congress. Let them pay full taxes. Uh, let all, all the rights and privileges of being a state, let them be a state. They got enough population, they would already be bigger than like 10 states that exist now. Guam and, and the other American Samoa and North Marianas Islands, that's a little trickier. There's not really enough population there to qualify for a state, but there's also not quite as much political unrest in those areas as there are in Puerto Rico. And I'm not sure political unrest is the quite term, quite the term as much as Puerto Rico tends to think of itself as an independent nation, and I don't really blame them. But if they think about themselves as an independent nation, I think they ought to be an independent nation. I think, I say I'd offer them state, statehood, but I think they should be an independent nation and then we offer them a, a treaty where we guarantee their protection from invasion for however long they've been our, ter our territory, so with about 120 years. So we'd offer them a treaty of, of 120 year protection where our military would protect them from invasion. And in the meantime, they can start growing their nation as an independent nation. That's my, that's my personal feeling on it. Anyway, I'm getting off topic on a major bunny trail here. See, if you were born in Puerto Rico and you moved to, say, Florida or anywhere, Wyoming, you can, I believe you're a citizen. Your birth in Puerto Rico counts. Now, here's the thing. We took Puerto Rico and Guam, but we did not take Cuba, even though Cuba was bigger, had more population, had more agricultural prospects, and in the long run, would have prevented Castro, but we didn't know that at the time. We didn't take Cuba. Instead, we went to bat for Cuba for their independence, for the Treaty of Paris. And there are so many treaties of Paris, but it just happened to be that one of the treaties of Paris ended the Spanish-American War. We went to bat for Cuba and secured its independence. I don't want to say that as if Cuba didn't earn its own independence. They fought for it as well. I'm just saying we, we were their ally in that in their attempt to gain their own independence. Puerto Ricans have been U.S. citizens since 1970. Okay, so let's take a second to talk about the Philippines. I, I mentioned Cuba. Let's talk about the Philippines. When the Spanish-American War, well, first of all, Spain had possession of the Philippines. That's why the Philippines is the only area in Asia with a Catholic majority. Spain had possession of the Philippines. And so when we defeated Spain, we secured the right to the Philippines. The Filipinos had already been fighting for their independence. That struggle was ongoing before we ever got involved in it. And so the Filipinos, for the most part, by and large, the ones that had, were taking up arms against the Spanish, just kept fighting. They kept fighting for their independence. And we fought them back, unfortunately, for a couple of years. And there were some atrocities on both sides. It was, it was an ugly war. But after that, we, st we started a relationship with the Philippines, which began them on the path to independence. And after the Japanese invaded, December 7th, 1941, they took it pretty quickly. If there were some atrocities done by Americans during the American-Philippine War, there was a buku atrocities that were committed by the Japanese when the Japanese had control. So part of our relationship with the Philippines during World War II was it was explicitly stated that we were going to liberate them for the purpose of their independence. 
which, and I want to be clear about this, the Philippines fought for their independence for several generations at that point. So I don't, I'm not taking away their accomplishment. But once again, just like Cuba, we came alongside as an ally, helped liberate the Filipinos from the Japanese, and then on July 4th, which I'm assuming we chose that date, July 4th, 1946, we secured independence for the Philippines. Another thing about the Philippines, this is the first time this heading says, did it become part of a U.S. state? So you can see Alaska and Hawaii did. And then everything up here that got cut off was yeses, like uh, California, the Gadsden Purchase, Louisiana Purchase, that all became states. So the Philippines, this category here was, does the United States still have control over it? And the very first no is the Philippines. So in, in the 40s, the United States did a switch in our attitude towards territorial acquisition. For the first time, we relinquished control of territories, but it would not be the last time. And once again, there's actually a few up here that got cut off as well. But every territory we acquired, mostly from World War II scenarios, relinquishing Japanese control over certain areas, almost all the territory we gave back, except Marianas Islands. The North Marianas, we still have possession of as a United States territory, and as you indicated, they are considered United States citizens. North Marianas citizens can move to Kansas and become a Kansas senator if they want to. The other territories, we've let them incorporate into another nation, like Micronesia, I think, is one where a collection of islands in the, in the Pacific will join together to form a country, or we've allowed them to become their own independent country. So, in other words, Manifest Destiny was over. And that trend towards Manifest Destiny being over really started with the end of the Civil War and our exhaustion of bloodshed. With the United States seeing 600,000 American boys killed, we decided maybe it's time to give war a rest for a while. And we started rethinking the value of conquest. And now the borders of the United States are probably fixed for good. Unless we add Puerto Rico as a as a state, I don't. I honestly see us adding the the Pacific uh, territories as states. I honestly see us uh, giving them independence whenever they whenever they're ready for it. Puerto Rico, I could see Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. eventually becoming states, but as of right now, it's it's not in the immediate future. But unless Puerto Rico becomes a state, our borders I think are set forever. I don't see the United States invading British Columbia or. Uh, you know, Cancun or anything anytime soon. So, all right, from the Civil War to World War One, the United States became a world power. We became a world power technologically. The telegraph, which was an American invention, the actually the the person who invented the telegraph was actually a painter. More, uh, Samuel Morse was a painter who apparently was a bit of a renaissance man because he also invented a communications technology. The real technological advancement with the telegraph, which was around before the Civil War, it was part of the Civil War, was that it became very widespread after the Civil War and all of a sudden now even newspapers, something that happened in San Francisco can be reported in the Boston newspaper tonight through telegraphs. Before the telegraphs, that kind of stuff would have to be 
that kind of news would have to be brought by word of mouth or by letter. Yeah, by Pony Express or by boat or by. It didn't last very long. Yeah, the Pony Express actually only lasted for 11 months. Yeah. Or was it 13? It was either one month more or one month less than a year. So basically a year. The Pony Express lasted about a year. And then the Telegraph put it out of business. Yeah. The Pony Express was a great idea. Uh, but it was also very expensive to, to send a. Dangerous. To send a letter by today's inflationary figures, I think it was somewhere around a hundred bucks. Well, our postage is getting kind of. <laughs> yeah, but not a hundred bucks. No, I mean, it was. Kind of, I think it was over. A, I think it was over. I think it was several dollars to send a letter by Pony Express. So by today's by today's inflation figures, that would be a, a lot of money. From the Civil War to World War One, the United States became a world power technologically with the telegraph. With the railroad, once again, a technology that was before the, before the Civil War, but exploded during and after the Civil War. And with the electric grid expansion, which is a technology that really won't pick up until the tail end of the 19th century. But as the electric grid begins to take off in the urban northeast, and then it starts to spread until eventually it becomes something that everybody's got to have. We uh, became a world power technologically with the proliferation of steam and internal combustion power. So once again, I don't, I'm not sure if we invented either of those. I think the French invented the internal combustion engine, but Henry Ford is the one that invented the moving assembly line for vehicles. There was already a moving assembly lines for, I believe, meatpacking. And he, that inspired him to do a moving assembly line for vehicles. And so Ford was able to produce enough vehicles that they became affordable to just about everybody. And then a big one that we cannot overlook is the Panama Canal. Because once the Panama Canal gets, gets finished, that cuts so much time off of trips from coast to coast. The trip all the way around South America, at that point, you're, you're almost where you want to justify you know, going... Like well, we got to go to Europe anyway. We'll just take the long way. But once you once you have once you have the Panama Canal, all you got to do is go into the Gulf of Mexico, and then you're all the way around. You you can skip South America entirely. We became a world power economically with the the explosion of the modern market economy. Uh, I already mentioned the moving assembly line, and also with central banking as as banking, which had been a controversial part of. United States society early on, like Andrew Jackson made a big deal politically about the Bank of the United States and his veto of it, his ending of the Bank of the United States at the time. Banking was such a controversial thing, and then by the end of the 19th century, it was just part of the American landscape. And then, of course, as the government found out that they could use their immense resources to help during government downturns as well which would help on several uh, downturns that happened between the Civil War and the Great Depression. Didn't help much with the Great Depression until Franklin Roosevelt decided to turn the idea of government aid in downturns to 11. There were two or three depressions in that time. Oh yeah, at least two, maybe three. Uh, one really bad one, I don't have anything in this in my notes and I didn't do any studying of it, but I in the 70s, mid-70s, there was a really bad one. It, in fact, that was called the Great Depression at the time. And then later they had to rename it. It was, one of the 90s. It was like nobody in World War I called it World War I. It was the Great War. And then when there was a greater war, just a generation later, they're like, well, we'll call that one World War I. So. 
Speaking of World War I, the United States became a world power militarily. Before the Civil War, our regular army was tiny, just a few thousand soldiers, and most of those were placed in various forts to protect white American citizens against indigenous Native American tribes. During the Western expansion, as we started to develop Western lands, our regular army stayed at a reasonably large number. And then, except for the isolationism that surrounded World War One, we we developed we started to develop kind of isolationists before World War One, and then World War One was so horrible we became isolationists again. Uh, and then World War II cured us of our isolation, and since then we've had massive armies, just big, massive, giant armies and navies since since World War II. Uh, with the exception of that, the isolationism around World War One, we've had a pretty sizable army. America is probably the least invadable nation. The United States of America is probably the least invadable nation in world history. Just with the size of our army, and I also got to say it, there's more guns in this country than citizens. So if, if somebody tried to invade, it would not take long for us to be able to arm every single one of us. There was a quote I read yesterday. It was from a Japanese general, and he said, there's two guns behind every blade of grass. An invasion of the United States would, would fail miserably. We also became a world power by population. Here is just a quick overview of how quick the population in the United States grew from the beginning, from the first census to the turn of the century. And you can see the total population, we went from a little less than 4 million to almost 80. But I find this interesting. You can also see the amount of increase. We would grow by at least 1.3 million every 10 years. And of course, it went from 1.3 to almost 2 million, 2.3, 3.2, 4.2, 6.1. And then all, all of a sudden down here, as we get a generation after the Civil War, now we're growing by tens of millions every, every 10 years. The percentage growth, it actually slows down right here. Do you, do you want to know why the percentage slows down right here? It's because we lost so many soldiers, so many young people, to have babies in the Civil War. But except for that hiccup, the percentages stay pretty solid in the mid to high 30s. That would have been the first census after the Civil War. Yes, that would have been the first census after the Civil War. And then, of course, also, the, the notice the, the very first census, notice the percentage of the urban population. It's 5% of the country lives in recognized cities. By the time you get to the turn of the century, you see the urban population growing a lot from 5% to 40 by the turn of the century. So our population is becoming more diverse. It's becoming numerically stronger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so what are some other legacies of the Civil War? Well, the rise of the KKK but also the Daughters of the Confederacy. I think we've talked enough about the KKK. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically the Ku Klux Klan was a terrorist organization. There's really no other way to, to describe them. They were a terrorist organization, and instead of their ideology being Islamic jihadism, it was white supremacy. The United Daughters of the Confederacy sometimes would work with the KKK to their eternal shame, but they were not the same. They were not the same thing. Well, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, their job, originally, they existed to take care of veterans, widows, and orphans of the, civil, of the Confederacy. So veterans or the widows and children of Confederate soldiers who died in the war. 
they started to diversify their portfolio into education and book suppression. They became a powerful political unit in the South in trying to oversee which books get approved by school boards. And that was really something that happened in the 1900, the kind of the 1900s, so 1900 to about 1960. The United Daughters of the Confederacy were a strong local political, and when I say local, I mean in each local area, a strong local political organization that would try to make sure that school districts and universities even would only use books that portrayed the truth about the Confederacy. And of course, by truth, we mean the lost cause, which we looked at in a previous lecture. But they're real big push, especially as the Civil War Confederate veteran generation died out, so they no longer had to, that as part of their mission to take care of veterans, a real big push became to memorialize the Confederacy and the Confederate war aims. A lot of it was with statues, but it was all kinds of, any kind of monument. Here we see a chart that shows when the monuments were made and starting, you see, interestingly enough, you already start to see Confederate war monuments in the, in the war, in, in the 1860s. See, here's, so here's the war, and then here's Reconstruction, and here's the beginning of Jim Crow. And then, as Jim Crow really picks up in the early 1900s, you see these statues proliferating. What's interesting about the timing here is most of these statues then are of dead men. Of, of the generation that's gone. The generation that the statues portrays, they weren't necessarily crying for statues. They weren't sitting around, John Bell Hood wasn't sitting around saying, why haven't they built me a statue yet? Those kind of statues come later. And then as we get into the 20s and 30s, it goes down, and then there's another spike during the Civil Rights Movement. And then, interestingly enough, all the way into the 90s, you start seeing new Confederate monuments, which is a little shameful. So let's take a look at that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the statues and the monuments. Like I said, during the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights era, thousands of Confederate monuments were constructed. Now, first of all, we have to acknowledge that it is highly unusual to commemorate the losing side of a war. You don't see a lot of statues to Hitler in Germany. For that matter, you don't see a lot of statues to people like Rommel. And Rommel was a fine general. And as far as I can tell, totally not a Nazi. They don't put statues for that era. They don't put statues up for an era that they're ashamed of. And they certainly don't put up statues for a war that they clearly lost. So it's weird, in principle, to have so much commemoration of a losing war. In fact, the American South kind of is the proof that history is not always written by the victors. Now, few of the statues were actually of high quality. You and I looked at this one earlier when we were talking about when we were talking about the generals. This is it's gone now, but this is the famous Nathan Bedford Forrest statue in Nashville. This was, if I'm not mistaken, put up in a majority black neighborhood which is why put up a statue of the first Grand Wizard of the KKK in a majority black neighborhood. That already gives away the, the purpose of the statue right there. But what I want to focus on now is just look at the aesthetic quality of this statue. In fact, let's take a closer look. These statues were, in, in many cases, produced cheaply and 
and some of them, some most of them, I'm sure, were, were, were fine statues that look like many statues, but some of them, like the Nathan Bedford Forrest statue, just look dumb. The quality of the building material has kind of shown itself in some of the protests as many of these statues are able to be brought down with a single rope and then one or two guys just pulling on it and sometimes they don't they, they don't you know, they're not toppled like like falling over sometimes they bend in the middle they're just really cheap statues in fact I, I was joking I said what we ought to do is instead of getting rid of these statues we ought to go around with plastic plaques and put up uh, against the statues that say Civil War runner-up and just put those against every so so like either that or, or civil war participation trophy and put those put a plastic tacky gold nameplate on on every one of these statues okay so the the location of these statues was intentional and a lot of documents, internal documents of the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, show that this is the case. They were intentionally put in government buildings, police and military grounds, and on universities. And in some cases, they were placed in predominantly black neighborhoods like a city park. Also, a lot of army bases got named after Confederate generals. So here's a list. You have Forts Hood, Bragg, Lee, Benning, Gordon, Pickett, Rucker, Polk, and Hill. That's nine United States of America military bases named after generals of the opposite team. Yeah, I don't know the story of all of them, but they are all in the South, but I do know the story of one. Fort Bragg, as it was being built, I believe it was being built in the rush in World War I as they were trying to mobilize, and the Army just left it up to the local council, the local Chamber of Commerce, and said, uh, uh, name it. And they said, oh, Fort uh, Braxton Bragg's from our town, so why don't we do that? And they said, sure. So I'm not sure the naming of these bases was as nefarious as putting a Nathan Bedford Forest statue in a predominantly black neighborhood. A predominant memorialization of the Confederacy is the Confederate flag that you see in a lot of places. Interestingly enough, the primary flag of the Confederate States of America is actually this one. This is the Stars and Bars, and I've been using that term incorrectly my whole life. I always thought the Stars and Bars was this one. I thought this was Stars and Bars, but no, the, the, when they say Stars and Bars, this is what they're referring to. A red stripe, a white stripe, and a red stripe, and then a blue field, just like the American flag with a blue field in the, in the upper left corner with 13 st uh, stars in it. And with the 13 that succeeded. Mm -hmm. Well, the 11 that succeeded, 11 and, and then succeeded. Kentucky and Missouri, which the Confederate States of America recognized but because they, they had Confederate declared governments, but they weren't the official government of those states. I wonder why that's not used. Basically because Robert E. Lee used the battle flag. So this was the primary Confederate states flag. And then this one began to be used. This was the second national flag, the stainless banner. Now this one, the army, the Confederate army actually didn't like very much. Can you guess why? It's white. It's white, and that looks like giving yourself up. Yeah, surrender. Yeah. Surrender. It looks like it looks like a surrender flag. So what they did was, they added a red bar on it, the nickname the bloodstained banner, and then that became the Confederate flag. This is the most modern, common modern variation, but as far as we can tell, this actual flag never really existed because it actually looked like this. This was the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. It was a square. And so when you stretch it out, I'll call that the General Lee from the Dukes of Hazard. But this is the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. The Confederate battle flag 
uh, found its way. Interestingly enough, Mississippi actually used the the actual Confederate battle flag. The Confederate battle flag found its way into several Southern state flags, and the one that lasted longest was Mississippi. It finally changed its flag last year, and this is Mississippi's flag. I kind of like it, not only because I don't really like seeing the Confederate flag because it just has too much history behind it. I just think this is a beautiful flag. Okay, so let's talk about solutions to some of these problems, and you do not have to agree with me. You do not have to agree with me, but here are some, some possible solutions. First of all, let's rename all of those army bases, every one of them. I'm not trying to say that these generals are should be hard and feathered, you know, obviously they're dead, but figuratively speaking, I'm not saying we should act like they're all horrible, rotten villains. We should remember them accurately for the good and the bad that they did, but I just don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to name U.S. military installations after generals that fought against the United States military. We might as well have bases called Cornwallis, Rommel, Santa Ana, and Tojo. Like I said, let's rename the Army bases. There's all kinds of names we can choose. You could pull Medal of Honor winners from every state. There are Medal of Honor winners from near each one of these that you could you could name these bases after. Or you can name them after words like Liberty. Fort Liberty sounds cool. There's all kinds of, of naming options. I believe that the Confederate flag should only be used in official capacities in its historical context. So for instance, if you were to go visit the Vicksburg battleground, the battlefield, the official battlefield, it would make sense to have a Confederate battle flag there. It makes sense. It was it, the Civil War is part of the history of that location. But to then put that Confederate battle flag at the post office in downtown Vicksburg does not seem to make a whole lot of sense, in my opinion. Now, I'm not saying individual citizens should not have the right to fly a Confederate flag if they want to on their own private property. For that matter, if, if I had a neighbor who wanted to fly a Nazi flag or the ISIS flag, I'm really not sure how much right I have to tell him not to, even though it would disgust me. So I'm not saying that the flag should be made illegal for all independent for all individual citizens. That, that'll run into First Amendment issues. But in official capacity, I think the Confederate flag should be used only in its historical context. What about the statues? I think most of the statues should be relocated. Few, if any, of the statues should be destroyed. The places of historical interest, so if, if a statue goes up in a town because General Hood was born there or he lived there, then let's remove the statue, but you can put up a historical marker that says General Hood was born in this town and his house was one block down from here and, and put the history out there. There's no reason you can't acknowledge that, that these historical things happen. There's a big difference between a historical marker and a big statue. There, there just is. So what should we do with the statues? I believe that the statues should be moved either to museums in a few cases, but honestly most museums don't necessarily want them because there's not a lot of room to put more art in museums. But there is one place we can move them where there's plenty of room, and that is battlefields. There are lots of battlefields that are officially recognized by the federal government or by individual state governments uh, from, from Gettysburg South and from the Atlantic Ocean all the way probably to 
I'm not sure if Glorietta Pass is an official Civil War battlefield or not, but that's the furthest west battle in New Mexico. So potentially from the Atlantic Ocean to New Mexico and from Gettysburg South. There are battlefields all over the place. So there's lots of places to put these statues that make sense in their historical context. So if you have a statue of Robert E. Lee that's sitting in a town square, that it makes total sense to carefully move that statue to the battlefield of Chancellorsville where he did amazing work and where a statue of Lee would make sense at that battlefield. As long as Grant's was bigger. And that's what I would say, is as we as we move these uh, statues to their appropriate place, for one thing I would put historical markers next to all these statues explaining where they were. Give the whole history. This statue was placed in a predominantly black neighborhood. And whether it was put there on purpose or not, it was removed and put in a more appropriate place this battlefield. And just put it there for, for school student visitors and, and, and school groups to read. Put all the history out there and then place that statue on a battlefield. And on the same battlefield, if it was Lee versus in a, a Grant statue at Chancellorsville wouldn't make sense, but put a statue of, of Hooker or Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain or whatever general, whatever Union general had a pretty good day that day at Appomattox Courthouse. I don't think there's a battlefield at Appomattox, is there? But there's probably there's probably a battlefield with Siege of Petersburg, maybe. But there's battlefields that you could put Grant statue in. So balance the the story. If you move seven Confederate battle statues to the Fredericksburg battlefield, then erect seven Union statues of similar size and value that seem to make sense for that battle. The general fought there on that day, or and they don't always have to be generals. If a, if a private did something particularly heroic and won the Medal of Honor, make a statue of that guy. If that would help give a more well-rounded history anyway. If the statues are all about history, make it a well-rounded history. If there's a, a battlefield that, that include the U.S. colored troops, put up a statue of a U.S. colored trooper. That way, when a black child in a, a third grade classroom who shows up with their class, when they're looking at all the statues, they could see their history as well. That the United States colored troops played an important part in this battle. That's part of a well-rounded history. And the statues are all about history, are they not? That's what we keep hearing. So the statues belong on these battlefields. Now, if a museum asked for a statue, if they said a particular statue was particularly good artwork and it's small enough to fit in our, our museum and we have a good location for it, go ahead. Move it to a museum. That's a great place to put a statue. But I think battlefields are a great place to re relocate uh, these statues. And also, can we just agree not to make any more statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest? There's no need to make a statue for the first Grand Wizard of the KKK, no matter how good of a, conf uh, of a cavalry officer he was. So is he really there at Round Top? Oh, no. This is, this is actually this is General Warren. He's a Union general. Yeah. I'm just giving an example of this picture is of a Union general at Little Round Top. It's appropriate to put statues on battlefields. We do it all the time. So battlefields can be a great place to put these things. And this was a, a picture to show you that we do it already. Well, I'm telling you, he's looking west. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason the reason why we have the General Warren statue is Little Round Top had trees all on this side of the hill, and so you really couldn't look down. The deforestation of, of Little Round Top actually began that day. So many bullets flew that the trees, it, it damaged the trees. But since then, 
deforestation and various things uh, has, has cleared it up. There's not very many trees there, but at the time, there were trees all along the side of the hill, and General Warren was sent by General Meade to go figure out what was happening, and when he went up on top of the mountain, he could see the bayonets uh, flashing through the trees, and he knew something was up, so he quickly cobbled together a unit that involved the 20th Maine. I believe it was the 20th, but it was it was Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain's Maine Volunteers. Quick, uh, quickly cobbled together a group and stuck them on top of the hill and said, stop them. And so that's why the General Warren statue is he's looking down towards where, where the Confederates were, were getting ready to charge up the hill. Now there's one statue that cannot be moved unless it's just destroyed, and that's Stone Mountain. And there, are probably, there might be a few others, but Stone Mountain is, is one statue that, that it either has to be destroyed or it has to be left up. Here's the thing. On Stone Mountain, you have, and if I'm not mistaken, I didn't look it up, but I believe one of these is Stonewall, one of these is Lee, one of these I think is Jefferson Davis, and maybe the other one's Joe Johnston or something, but it's four Confederate, or maybe Jeb Stewart instead of Johnston. They're four prominent Confederates, okay? So look at all this area here and here and down here. There's all kinds of room to do more. So leave this. Don't mess it up. And then right here, put a, a picture of Robert Smalls driving his CSS planter out to the Union blockade to join it. And then over here, maybe put a David Farragut tied to the mast of his ship saying, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. And then over here, maybe maybe something was commemorating the Free State of Jones boys, if you ever see the Free State of Jones. I'm not saying put... Sherman up here. That that would just be insulting to Georgia because the Union Army, and I've defended it, the March to the Sea made sense in the context of the war. But if you live in Georgia, I'm not telling Georgians they have to honor the March to the Sea. So I'm not saying put Sherman up here, but there are lots of Southern fighters, Southern people who were loyal to the United States to help fill out the story. So leave the Confederate story and keep telling the story. And for that matter, what's, who says that this thing has to be just about the war? You could put Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. There's all kinds of other options you could put. You could put Michael Jordan and Dale Earnhardt up here, for that matter, if you want to tell a full Southern story. And if you don't want to put those kind of things up on the, on the mountain, go ahead and put Robert Smalls and David Farragut and a couple other stories and down here on this area, do some statues to civil rights icons as well, to, so that this historical area, this place, presents a more well-rounded historical story. And in that case, you don't have to destroy this. You don't have to get rid of it. The options are not just celebrate the Confederacy or destroy it. There are other options. That's all I'm saying. I looked that up, and they plan like to meet at the top and burn crosses. That's why the site was chosen. In fact, I believe the, the original KKK was founded in Stone Mountain, Georgia. The KKK that exists today, I'm not sure where it was founded, but it blew up in, of all places, Indiana. There's no real evidence that the KKK that exists today is the, the actual same Ku Klux Klan that existed after the Civil War. It seems that the, the KKK actually died out and then 
in the earliest stages of the civil rights movement in the around World War One, the real what we would refer to the civil rights movement is actually like Brown versus the Board of Education through the '60s, so the '50s and '60s. But early stirrings of the civil rights movement happened around World War One and then World War Two, and then as and then Korea as the troops were integrated between white and black troops, you started to see more and more stirrings, and that's when the new K KKK was reborn. You'll have a hard time changing Stone Mountain. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying put, I'm not saying put Sherman and Grant up there. I'm saying put Smalls and Farragut up there. Put Southerners up there, and maybe leave Farragut off. But put, give a more well-rounded story. Yeah, I don't think that's part of their story. But that's just it. Is is they they swear up and down that it, it's just about the history. It's not about white supremacy. It's not about any of that. If that's the case, then put Robert Smalls on the dang mountain. He's a Southerner too. Let me add one more thing about the Confederate flag. A lot of times, whenever a Facebook or an internet argument about the Confederate flag flares up, you'll see a lot of vitriolic anger from both sides. And the vitriolic anger from the pro-flag side, from the pro-Confederate battle flag side, basically boils down to, oh, you're, you're just a woke mob, or you're trying, to, you're trying to suppress history, you're trying to put down, this is my culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is, it doesn't mean all the stuff you say it means, it means other things. My position then becomes, if you honor this flag and you say it's about this other stuff, say, the honorable soldiers during the war, and also, you know, college football, NASCAR, fried potatoes, all the southern stuff that's really good to, to honor. If that's what it's about, then I would have liked to have seen you be just as angry when the KKK misused the flag. Because if you're saying this flag isn't about white supremacy and this other stuff, you should have been just as angry at the KKK for misusing the flag as you are with me for opposing it now. And like I said, I'm a First Amendment guy. I'm not saying that we need that, that individual citizens shouldn't have the right to, to, to fly the flag. I would like to ask, as just citizen to citizen, why? Especially in Kansas. Yeah. We're not a Confederate state. you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. Music by Coma Media from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you. <laughs>